Hi everyone, I'm Max. I'm Kayla. And this is Doesn't Anybody Ever Get It Right? The podcast where Max and I try to open doors and sing merrily. In case you didn't get that, this week we're covering... We're covering. This week we're reimagining Merrily We Roll Along, the Stephen Sondheim classic flop. Yes. This, this I think, is the second hardest flop we've covered so far. It, it's Carrie and then this. I think that's pretty yeah. much. If Lysistrata Jones ran longer than you, you're in, you're in trouble. <laughs> All right. So let's begin with our history portion. I'll start with the synopsis. Merrily We Roll Along follows three friends, Franklin Shepard, a Broadway composer turned Hollywood producer, Charlie Kringus, Franklin's writing partner, and Mary Flynn, a columnist and novelist. It follows them backwards at time from 1976 to 1957. We follow these flawed friends from their present day selves, successful and miserable, back to the idealistic artists they were. Merrily We Roll Along is based on the George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart play of the same name from 1934. The play was pretty successful critically, but was a financial failure and was never revived on Broadway. It ran for 155 performances, a lot more than this than this musical. Yes, but this has had a long second life, which the play did not. That's- Very true. Uh, Merrily would be the sixth significant collaboration of the composer-lyricist Stephen Sondheim and director Hal Prince. Other notable works include Company, A Little Night Music, and directly before this show, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. The book would be written by George Firth. Prince and Sondheim intended Merrily as a vehicle piece for young performers. Prince's wife, Judy, actually inspired it. She said, you have kids, you like kids, do a show about kids. And then he was like, you like this play, I'll do this play. And then he called Sondheim and Sondheim said yes on the phone. They cast this through non-equity open calls for performers age 16 to 25. So it was just really young people. And they really dug into that teenage feel by using bleachers and lockers as the set and ditching traditional costuming in favor of sweat shirts with character names on them a choice for sure yeah musically Sondheim would intend to go back to basics with this show and write a more simplistic score than he was known for the first preview was on October 8th 1981 the show was clearly not landing with audiences full rows of people had been seen leaving by the cast in the middle of the show On October 21st, it was announced that James Weisenbach, who was playing Frank, would be replaced by Jim Walton. What a heartbreaker. You've rehearsed this show. It's your Broadway debut. You're playing the lead. The posters are printed and you're ousted because the audiences aren't vibing with you. After two delays, one of which was caused by the replacement of Frank, Merrily opened on Broadway November 16th, 1981, and closed 12 days later on November 28th after Mm. 44 previews and 16 performances. Reviewer Judy Licht summed it up pretty well with, it feels like a college production, albeit the Yale School of Drama. It was an incredibly talented group of kids, but with the weird costuming and set choices and young, young people playing, you know, real grown-ups, it felt mm-hmm. very college musical theater. In the New York Times review by Frank Rich, he seems to believe that this show is far more derivative than original, making many comparisons to previous Sondheim shows such as Follies and Company. 
Additionally, Rich believed that the play betrays itself by telling the story in reverse, therefore killing the shocking moments at the end of the source material. I'll quote him to finish this off. We keep waiting for some insight into these people that might make us understand, if not care about them, but all we get is a fatuous attitudinizing about how ambition, success, money always leads to wreck and ruin. That's scathing. So let's reimagine some insight into these folks. All right, welcome back. We have on the show today a dear friend of mine and an old professor of mine from the University of Arizona, David Morton. David is an associate professor in the BFA acting slash musical theater program at the University of Arizona and a designated link later voice teacher. Originally from Southern California, he has an MFA in acting from the University of Washington and is a self-professed Shakespeare nerd. He has acted with the Utah, Colorado, and Seattle Shakespeare Festivals, as well as the Shakespeare Theater Company in Washington, D.C. As a voice and or dialect coach, he has worked with Arizona Theater Company, a contemporary theater, and Arizona Opera, among others. For the past five seasons, he has served as voice and text coach for Santa Cruz Shakespeare, where he is currently coaching a three-person adaptation of Richard II, which will open on July 25th. On YouTube, you can enjoy his drag alter ego talking about the dirty parts of Shakespeare in his video blog, Dirty Willie with Fulta Burston. David, welcome. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for the old professor tag, Max. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> very young, very suave, very handsome I... professor. <laughs> so, David, you picked Merrily We Roll Along. Tell us why. Well, okay, so number one, I love this music. I could I could sing this music all day long. And I always remember this this would have been back in the nineties, I think. I saw a production of it at the Arena Stage in Washington, DC. And, you know, I was really intrigued, um, as we all are when we watch it, you know, where it's like, ooh, it's going backwards. How interesting. But I remember afterwards going, Wow, that didn't that didn't quite work. You know, no, no, no shade to the arena stage because it was a very good production. But, you know, I was like, wow, that was really unsatisfying. And I thought about it and I thought about it and I sort of went, oh, I know how to fix it. Then, of course, every theater person I talked to was like, no, 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 of course, we all know how to fix it. And so I've never really talked much about it. So, yeah, so I was when you when you all started this um podcast I was like oh that's the perfect show to discuss because like I say I mean I think some of the music is glorious but you know to walk out of after hearing that music for two hours and then walk out of the theater like eh, that one, yeah I don't feel good mm. <laughs> I'm like no it deserves better so <laughs> so here we are just for the record Kayla and I have been humming slash singing the tunes from this show nonstop for the last week. They're very hum-a-mummable. Totally. They are so hum-a-mummable. <laughs> so let's start with the foundation of this show, and we'll start with the gimmick. This thing runs in reverse, and um, I, I'm wondering whether that's actually worth keeping in this. Does it do anything to m help the material soar? I'm, I'm not sure that it does, because in its current state, it's simply a gimmick. It was just something that 
I don't know if it was in the original script. That it was in the original play. Yes. It just, there's, there's no story reason behind it. And so it lacks any purpose for that kind of mechanic. Well, let me just say this as, you know, now looking at the show as an older person, the backward structure is interesting because obviously as you get older, you sort of look back on your life and go, oh, I wonder if I'd done that instead of that, if I'd still be where I am today. So I think in that way, it can be really super interesting that you go, oh, these are the characters. We meet the characters in quote unquote present day and go, wow, that really sucks. Their life really sucks. And then tracing back to how that happened, going back to what's universal, which is when we're all 20 years old, 21 years old, and we think that we can conquer the world. You know, I, th I find it really kind of interesting and, and, and intriguing that you get this backwards, as confusing as it is when you're watching it. You're like, wait, let me, how did that turn out? Wait a minute, let me remember how that came out. So I, 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 it is a gimmick, but I think it's a really interesting gimmick that makes the show really, really kind of fascinating and complex. To be clear, I'm keeping the backwards, the backwards nature. <laughs> I just thought it'd be uh, important to bring up that subject right from the beginning because it is definitely one of the things that makes this place so challenging to do because you are kind of telling everybody the joke before you've done any setup. So you're, you're always fighting against yourself and you have to do more work than you traditionally would in order to make the, the show work. I will say what's been fascinating, preparing for this and watching the show in the actual correct chronological order was really interesting because if you take it as it is now and you run it in the correct order, it's a really crappy story <laughs> about, you know, a really unattractive person who screwed everybody's life up. So in that sense, I think it definitely needs fixing because if you run the story forward, it's like, well, that was freaking depressing, you know? And, and so there's no redemption at the end of the story as it stands now. And I think that's the place that, that you have to start when you're fixing it. Can we move on to Max, your, your concept for the show? Cause I did a lot of my building off what we discussed. Absolutely. So I see this as it's a memory play. That, that is what it is. It's built as a memory play and then they didn't make it a memory play. In my concept for this show, I wanna do this entirely through the lens of Frank looking back after he's lost his final friend and I want him to look back on all these moments throughout his life. So the way that I want this to be done is that because it's Frank looking back, he's going to be always the one guy playing Frank. And then throughout the show, I want the people playing his dear friends, Charlie and Mary, to become younger. So I'll probably have them played by either two or three actors for each of those, just so that we can continuously see that this is Frank looking back on his life and the choices that he made to get to this place where he has everything that he thought he wanted, but found out that it wasn't actually what he wanted. And then, David, you could tell me how absolutely terrible you think this is, but I've decided that as we move further and further back through the story, I want there to be less detail. So as we move through the first uh, major transition, we'll start to lose more background characters till slowly we get to the end of the play and we have no background characters. Then we get less environment and slowly less color so that once we get to the final scene, we're essentially on a black stage with a bench and just white light because Fun fact, this is a, a, a psychological theory that's been explored several times. That is the memories that we access the most are actually the least reliable because the way that we grab memories from our subconscious is that we essentially rewrite them and then put them back. And so every time you access a memory, you are slowly 
rewriting the details of it until none of the actual truth of the memory is there, which is really disturbing and haunting, but that's <laughs> beside the point. I love that idea as a design that it starts to become more and more sort of towards a black and white movie almost by the end. Um, I think that's really cool. And I think it gets hazier, uh, making hazier. it a, and making it a memory play also makes it make sense because there has to be a moment in the first slash last scene, the, the party scene, that we open the show with. There has to be a moment where mm -hmm. Frank realizes the damage that he's done, not only to the other two lives, well, or more than that actually, but that how much those two people gave him in his life that he reject, he ended up rejecting. So there's a moment in that first scene where the guy says, how do I get to be you? And he turns and he says the line from the last scene that, that um, Charlie said to him, you don't just write what you know, write what you know. And he points to his head and his heart, which is what Charlie said to him on the rooftop in the very first scene. And he, he repeats it to this kid in the, this play is so hard to talk about first and last, in the party scene. <laughs> he quotes Charlie. So yes. he quotes Charlie without even thinking about it. And that's the moment that he realizes that he wouldn't be who he is without Charlie, without Mary. Oh, and if the young, the people who will play their young versions are standing in the corner and he looks at them. Oh, exactly. Or if we don't do the young version, you see Charlie and Mary in the present working again. Like Char Charlie's already got the hit Broadway show. Mary would have to be actually writing again. And, and I'll have lots of things to say about Mary. Oh, me too. <laughs> then we have a story of, oh, I learned something. He learned something and therefore I learned something as a, as a viewer. I like that. Max, you think that we should take it out of the timeline. I don't think that the specific timeline is important. I think simply the fact that we move back through someone's life is all we need. We don't need it to be set with these very specific things that happen throughout the play where they talk about the Kennedys and Xerox and Sputnik. I don't, I don't think that that's actually necessary to the plot. That's very Ivo von Hovo of me uh, to be like, what? Things should be placed at a certain time period. They should always be now. But The only argument I have is a design one. And that is that the late 1950s to the early 1980s have very distinctive clothing movements. And so being able to have very stylistically different costumes throughout the story would help with reminding people where we're at in the timeline. Yeah. I actually think the timeline is important because... Well, my first, when you first said that, I was like, oh, but, you know, Bobby and Jackie and Jack is so time specific. And I love that song. Um, I think it's super clever. Oh, no. Um, oh, you hate it, don't you? <laughs> it's set in that time period when it was a sort of dawning for the general consciousness, I think. You know, that we have the first satellite in space. We have the 1960s. We have the Kennedys. We have Camelot that it starts in a time of tremendous potential and then moves into quote unquote modern day after you've lived through the assassination, after you've lived through civil rights, after you've lived through all that stuff. So I think in some ways the setting mirrors the personal journey of those characters. I will concede that from a design perspective, it helps a lot. 
for the audience. Also, we would have to change some major orchestrations in some of the songs that are based around typewriter sounds if you modernized it. Oh, right. I want to move on and uh, I want to talk about tone for a moment because this play ends with so much hope, which feels completely unearned knowing the journey we've been on. It doesn't feel right. So I just want to talk about the, the fact that in its current state, the show requires an incredible amount of thought and effort for the audience once they leave the theater. More effort is put in after you leave the theater than while you're in the theater with this play. If you just came to see a show and, and just consume, this show is not for you in its current state. But I love that. I think that's gr I love theater that makes me, you know, that I'm still thinking about it the next morning, trying to put the pieces together. So, I mean, maybe that's why I love this show. I never thought about that. It's probably why I love this show so much, because, you know, I love to like sort of go into my own little reality and try and figure out the world. What I think is interesting about that is it requires the actors to go from jaded to idealistic and enthusiastic. And the production that you know that that i watched so much they were pretty tired by the end of the show and i'm like no 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 you've got to end the show with that in enthusiasm and excitement and idealism and you've got to just be full of everything fabulous and the actor who I've... played frank his like his youthful innocence whatever was very off-putting for me i don't know what it was and so I was thinking a lot about the casting of this show and obviously having 17-year-olds play the roles all the way through didn't work. They tried it, didn't work. <laughs> um, but I also don't think that having people in their late 40s playing the roles all the way through works either because, one, they're tired, you're right, and two, it, it makes the beginning feel like the truth and the end feel like a lie. And I think every part of this show needs to feel honest what an excellent uh, wordsmithing there, Kayla. I loved that. <laughs> I do have to say Sondheim gives them no help by putting uh, opening doors at the end of the show. Like that is such a high energy. It's a great number, but I can't imagine being in my 40s and singing opening doors and then still having to have the youthful enthusiasm for the end of the show. I would be exhausted <laughs> in my current state. <laughs> Watch it. Careful. <laughs> I'm like, oh, if only I were 40, I would knock it out of the park if I was You would slay 40. this show. You would do jumping jacks through it. Yeah. Can we talk about Mary? Absolutely. Yes. Okay, well, there's a girl in the play, and she's in love with the guy, and she's around, and we need a girl part that's not the ingenue part. And so here she is, and nothing about her makes sense. It doesn't make sense why she's in love with Frank and why she stays in love with Frank. It doesn't really make sense why she starts drinking. It doesn't make sense why she stops writing. It doesn't really make sense what kind of writer she ever is. There's just not enough given to her, period. So what I said is that if Mary is going to be in love with Frank, if you're going to keep that, which I wouldn't, then they need to have moments alone together. They don't until the party at the end. She needs to have an opportunity to fall in love with him. It's her, him, and Charlie together. She and Charlie have some moments alone, but she never has a moment alone with Frank to fall in love with him, so that's stupid. I think she's a lesbian. She gives big queer energy to me, and I think that being a lesbian novelist in the 70s 
would be a lot more interesting for her character and could also if for some reason her sexuality came out and was controversial she could end up being dropped by her publisher and stuff and kind of have a catalyst to launch her into this depression that makes her start drinking interesting because i think first of all do we know how old sondheim was when he wrote this Sondheim was 51 years old when he wrote this. He was? He looked so hot. <laughs> he was so hot. <laughs> Good for Sondheim. But that makes perfect sense to me because, you know, it is that sort of looking at love from the other side and going, oh, I see what went wrong or, oh, I see what a moron I was. I get it now. In many ways, I agree with you that she, Mary feels like an add-on because we we hear that she got famous, but we never really get to experience how she got famous or how her life changed or anything like that. I love the comment about that we never see she and Frank alone together. We do get a few moments, like in, in the divorce court, there's one part where he says, hold me, Mary, and you're, you almost get them coming together, and then he says, no, you know, never mind, and he breaks away. But again, if you if you run that story forward, her story is the story of a woman who becomes alcoholic and really awful, period, end of story. And I think to make her work, there has to be a moment in the party scene, the opening scene, where she, she pulls it together. Like she finally goes, oh my God, I've wasted so much of my life being in love with this man who doesn't deserve it. And I almost think if I was directing it, that she would say, we're done, she'd take her drink, she'd pour it on the floor before she walked out the door. She finally figured out what an idiot she's been and now she's gonna go off and you know maybe sit back down at a typewriter or maybe she's gonna do something with her life. Um, but at this point, it's just like, oh, well, there's a woman who's gonna drink herself to death. Great, so glad I spent two hours watching that. Yep. Okay, so this is something that really stuck out to me when I was spending time with the show in chronological order is kind of the dynamic between Frank and Meg, then Gussie and Frank, then Joe and Gussie of that like powerful, famous person and the young dreamer. I think that that's really, I don't know. I just think that the sexual and romantic exploitation is very interesting and kind of the power dynamics and to some degree manipulation it's not weinstein level here or anything but it is like powerful producer marries his secretary powerful broadway star has an affair with the rising playwright that she drug out of obscurity rising actress is sleeping with the producer i don't know i just think it's it's an inherited manipulation and again there's no payoff because i mean you 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 have to have a moment in that first party scene where he realizes what bad choices those were. You know, it's caused him to lose Gussie. It's caused him to lose Beth. It, you know, I mean, there has to be these moments where he goes, oh my God, I'm such a freaking idiot to have sacrificed what was real for what was not. I mean, just the whole thing about, you know, the producer and the, you know, Joe and Gus. I mean, that's just really, that's just super creepy that he takes his secretary and has her fix her nose and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, suddenly she's his wife. And, and I mean, Frank is grooming Meg for the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, dis it's very unsatisfying, all of that stuff. 
That could, that could be brought up into the 21st century a little bit. Yeah, and I talk about it in the deep dive more, but I think that using a leitmotif from growing up between each of those relationships, not just Gussie and Frank, but giving Joe and Gussie a moment with that and Meg and Frank a moment with that could highlight that problematic dynamic a little more. Put it to music. <laughs> okay. And a final character thing is I just cut the child actor. I don't I don't think that we just need a random child <laughs> in here for like one scene. It is past his bedtime. Falsettos. I get it. Billy Elliot. I get it. Get him out of here. I think that especially if we're doing this as a memory play from Frank's perspective, Frank feels this huge distance and separation from his child and feels like he never got to see him and that he was taken away from him. So it even makes sense in that concept why we would never actually see Frankie. We just hear about him a lot. Mm -hmm. Yes. My, my director self says yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, as an audience member too, when you see a child on stage, half your attention is, oh, look how well that child's acting. You know, and you never you never quite buy him as a character because you're watching this adorable yeah. little child acting either well or not well. And my brain goes, oh, who made this child be here? Does he have a terrible stage, mom? <laughs> Does he want this? Does he really want this with his life? What have we learned? Children are distracting for the audience. That way, that's what we've learned here. So get today. them out of there unless they serve a real purpose. So let's talk about the music of this show. It's Sondheim. I need to be very careful with the things that I say. I don't have a lot to say about the music in this show, other than the fact that the transitions, even though most of them are just a minute, a minute is still way too long for a transition. I would like to cut all the transitions down to 15 to 30 seconds. There is one transition. There's only one that is 30 seconds long, and it feels like it is right on the edge of being too long. So I feel like that is my barometer. <laughs> yeah. The first time I watched it, I was like, why are these even here? And then I realized that they were necessary to the structure of the show because Very it's not, important. yeah, it's not like a fully backward show. It progresses forward between transitions and then transitions represent a jump backwards in time. But I think that you kind of have two options. So if you keep Bobby and Jackie and Jack, which I would do, um, then I would add defining characteristics of the year into each of the transitions because it's very just like feelings, which is fun for memory play, but like give it a little bit of like 1979, we've got the just a couple of defining characteristics. So it's not so repetitive. It also helps to contextualize the Bobby and Jackie and Jack because that's the only time that the characters say the year in the show you know what i mean the characters mm. themselves say the year instead of the the magical ensemble so i think that could contextualize that a little bit too um but if you don't keep bobby and jackie and jack uh first you're wrong but second just just shorten them and <laughs> maybe use the transitions to transform the space in some interesting way if that's oh if that's coherent with your set design i don't know if this is germane in this moment but the thing that kept striking me is they keep they keep lionizing frank for his music nobody ever talks about charlie's lyrics mm -hmm. and yet the lyrics of stephen sondheim are such a massive part of why this show is delightful and it's like what what how come nobody's paying attention to charlie i mean that's you know going uh, we've got a good thing going 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 gone i mean that's just that's fantastic and yet they all you know they all ignore mm -hmm. charlie and they all talk about you know frank and i'm like something's weird here 
I think it's because Frank wanted to be talked about and Charlie just wanted to make art. Yeah, but I mean, how many how many teams of composers, lyricists, do they only talk about one and not the other? Especially when the lyricist is Stephen Sondheim slash Charlie Kringus. <laughs> but I feel like when they were working together, they were getting equal mentions, but then Frank just split off and stopped doing music. And then they had to be like, Frank, return to music. They never had to tell Charlie to, to return to plays because he never left them. Right, right. I don't know. That didn't stand out to me, but... All right, shall we dive deeply? I think we are ready to dive deeply. We've come to the very beginning of the show where Kayla and I are once again <laughs> opposed. This is a very strong opinion I have, but if you have a live orchestra, that is the only excuse you should ever have to have an overture. If I come to a show and it is recorded and you have an overture, I'm already pissed off. But also this show should have a live orchestra. It, if we're being serious, the only time it's going to be done in, with a live orchestra is very high budget, expensive productions. And right now it's it's doing the community theater thing. True. I don't know. I think that you need the overture if you cut Merrily We Roll Along, which I do. <laughs> I, like, I don't cut it. I move it. I move it aggressively. But I think you can't start with that, Frank. Why not? I would just start with that Frank because because that's that's how musicals start. You start the musical with the song that introduces the main character, Beauty and the Beast, Wicked. Like this is the way that a musical works. <laughs> I also like that it that it starts and you're sort of like, whoa, what's going on? Where are we? You know, there's a lot of energy on stage. What's happening? I mean, I, I like that you sort of knock the audience off off center at the at the beginning of the show. I love that. All right, I'm, I could be into that. But yeah, Merrily we Roll Along, I make it, it's the new finale for me. Oh, why is it the beginning of the show? I was texting Kayla earlier today and I told her, I was like, it's essentially the prologue from Romeo and Juliet, but we don't introduce any plot. We just introduce themes and don't tell anybody why we're doing any of this. Yeah, and it's sort of the Greek chorus kind of thing. You know, this is the tone of the show. We're going to comment on it between every scene, da, 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 but... But it doesn't, you're right, it doesn't add any information to, uh, you know, to our understanding of what's going on. And it would be fascinating to just jump right into the first scene, like you're jumping into the pool. And then you have to sort of swim around to figure out what the story is, which you'll find out in, you know, in about two hours from now. <laughs> We're not handholding with anybody. <laughs> I changed my mind. I love that. Y'all, y'all sold me. Okay, that Frank, let's talk about it. Our new opening. It's a little precious. It is a little precious. I don't mind a little precious. <laughs> I would add my first growing up motif here from Frank to Meg. And I liked what David was talking about earlier about having some degree of reflection on that relationship and how destructive it is. And this is a small thing, but I have to say it. I understand why they have the Mary, you know what I'm having, bartender, what, Mary, not much fun little exchange because those are the first three lines of the play. And they wanted to capture that. But it doesn't make any sense. She, it, There's already a guy like badgering her with questions about like, what do you do? Whatever. Why wouldn't he be trying to get her a drink and say, what are you having? And then she says, not much fun. Then it's funny. Mm -hmm. It's not her being like, oh, I have a joke. I'm going to make this man ask me the questions so that I can tell my joke. I love that script change. <laughs> Thank you. 
The thing that I do like in that, Frank, is that we hear little snippets of our time and we hear little snippets of the blob that it's, again, it's mm-hmm. the echoes of the past living in the present that, you know, is there a way to sort of bring them out even more so that they sort of make sense when we encounter them backwards in the timeline. That's what Sondheim does so masterfully in all of his shows is integrate all of the pieces in ways that you, in the moment, don't consciously think about, but then you can either subconsciously get it or later when you're preparing for a podcast, just be like, wow, this man is a genius. Look at all these things he's done to help us along. <laughs> so here's my, here's my brilliance. Here's, are you ready for my brilliance? I'm ready. Absolutely. My whole th- fix for the show is that moment where the guy says, how do I get to be you? And he says, don't just write what you know, write what you know, and realizes that he's quoting Charlie that Charlie's been a part of his life, Mary's been a part of his life, and then you bring in the first version of Not A Day Goes By. And Frank sings Not A Day Goes By to Charlie and Mary. (gasps) David. (laughs) (laughs) I told you I solved it. (laughs) Why do you look so David. (laughs) Wow. And and you could you could bring them physically on stage. You could have them in separate areas where they suddenly become present in his mind again. But that that's to me that's the moment that makes the story worth telling. So there you have it. I fixed it. You've just exploded my whole vision. <laughs> you fixed it. It's fixed. <laughs> wow. Oh wow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> We've got to keep going through this. Um, this is going to be very different from our normal podcast because a lot of these songs are just good, good. songs and they do what they're supposed <laughs> to do. So we don't need to fix every individual song and scene. So um, David, unless you have things you want to do, Kayla and I don't think that there are any fixes that are needed for old friends or like it was. Both of them are good songs. I love like it was. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a beautiful fable. Like, where she, in the end, just says, we blame everything on how it never actually was. Right. Oh, I love it. Franklin Shepherding. Because this is Charlie's final scene, mm-hmm. we have to have some closure on his story or that we understand his journey. And the whole thing of him, you know, him going off on, on Franklin in the interview there has to be the moment where he realizes that he's destroyed the friendship. And I didn't, certainly in the, in the production that I was studying, I didn't get that. You know, he's been blaming Frank all along for screwing up the friendship, screwing up the partnership, and then he realizes he's done something. He has to have a moment where he realizes the mistakes he's made. I mean, he goes on, you know, we hear in the next chronological scene, we hear that he's successful on his own, and that's great. But with regard to the friendship between the three of them, he has to have a moment of completion of whatever the word is. But I don't think Sondheim necessarily finished his story. I would love to see Mary on stage watching the interview, like either in the wings or on a monitor backstage, quote unquote. And then it includes her. She gets more inclusion in the story instead of just being the woman who was included. So there was a woman. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that's interesting about this scene is that you find out in this scene that they did go ahead and make the movie of Musical Husbands, which in the next scene, which is the previous timeline (laughs) charlie said absolutely not under no conditions there's not enough money in the universe and 
I think that's the challenge with Charlie's characters is he keeps acquiescing to Frank. He keeps acquiescing. He keeps acquiescing. His motivations mm. are pretty unclear. And I don't, I don't quite know how you fix it. But that's the challenge in this scene is how does he finally understand that he's been just as destructive by saying yes, 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 yes to all of these things that he didn't want to do. Which is crazy because earlier, 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 later in the play, but earlier in the timeline, he says like a good, ar a good artist knows when to, when to stop. And when Gazi asks them to play good thing going again, he's like, no, we, we should know when to stop. But he never knows how to mm -hmm. say no. And it causes him to flip out on live TV. Okay, um, if we continue to move back, we're now in 1968 with Old Friends. The first time I ever was introduced to this show was singing Old Friends in a cabaret with two people I had met literally uh, a day before. So that was <laughs> something. <laughs> and then we have uh, Growing Up. So as I mentioned before, I want Growing Up to serve as a motif for the older, richer, more powerful partners seducing kind of the young dreamers. So in order to make that work, currently growing up is essentially a frank solo and then a gussie solo but it is one number and so they would need to be separated and made a little bit more distinct from each other but i think that that wouldn't have you wouldn't have to change much well growing up uh, frank's part of growing up i think is interesting because he almost gets it in this scene he almost understands that he everything he is is because of the other two but doesn't quite, he doesn't quite get it. Yeah, it seems like he almost resents that everything he has is because of these two. He wants to be his own. Right, right. Which is a huge mistake. Okay, we can move further on into 1966, which is the third transition. Not a day goes by. What a beautiful song. Mm. However. However, period. What a beautiful song. I love that it comes out of nowhere, that we've never seen this woman, and then we are just like in this deeply emotional moment with her. I'm like, what the fuck? But in a good way. And then I, this was my, watching Beth, I think was my favorite part about the backward structure, was having this stranger just be so vulnerable and then getting to know her a little bit. I thought this was one of the best arcs in the show. And it's, it's so sad, it's so tragic because it really gives you that very human thing of they're getting divorced, but there's still love, but there's betrayal and they have to make decisions that are heartbreaking. You know, I mean, again, that's what Sondheim does so well. It's not just a musical theater divorce. <laughs> I got to say, though, in the production that we watched, that girl's Texas accent will haunt me until the day I die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there were some dreadful American dialects in that production. I was trying to take her seriously so much, and she'd start singing, and I'd love it. And then she'd start talking, and I'd be like, no, please, <laughs> sing more. <laughs> now you know. Yeah, an interesting end of Act 1 finale. <laughs> I don't get the cruise. I don't get that whole thing. I don't... In the play, it makes a lot of sense, because... He goes off on this venture with kind of these hoity-toity, artsy-fartsy people, and that's where he becomes stuck up, essentially. But that doesn't happen here. And so I, I just don't really understand why this is like a huge plot thing. Also, it sounds so into the woods. This whole song is so into the woods, <laughs> which I know happened later, but it still distracts me. We'll discuss this later, but it, it is 
really interesting how distracting um, Stephen Sondheim's specific style is because you'll be listening to one of his shows and then suddenly you're like, this, this sounds exactly like this other show. <laughs> and it, it happened to me multiple times in this show. Um. <laughs> but it isn't his fault. He was given yeah. those beans. Yeah. <laughs> we'll cut that. So the end of act one, really strange song to end act one with. And then we start act two with another really strange song, which is oh. so tonally out of place. Can I, can I go off for a moment? Please. Go off. <laughs> so here's the thing about musical husbands. It's supposedly the show that makes them rich and famous, right? It's the worst show in the song or worst song in the show. See, I'm so upset I can't talk straight. It's like, wait, how did this get them rich and famous? It's just dopey. I mean, I, I get that it's a bastardization of good thing going, but it's just like the cheesiest, worst cliches about Broadway musical theater. It's like, Stephen, what happened? I feel like it's Stephen poking fun at commercial musical theater. And him being like, this is what all you dribble sounds like. I'm the only good one. <laughs> I kind of agree with you. I kind of, I, I did think about that. I'm like, oh, he's making fun of musical theater. But in the context of this story, it's like, oh, so they got rich on a really bad show, which I suppose is part of what he's saying is that, you know, the show they want to do is the good one. And the show that they keep writing is the bad one. But it's really bad. It's a really, I, I listened to it this last time going, this might be a good drag number if it was longer, but you know, <laughs> other than that. Great drag number. I had to skip, I mean, I, I didn't skip them all the time because I had to listen to them for this show, but I just really did not enjoy listening to Gussie's numbers. And it had nothing to do with the actress or the singer because I listened to like four different versions. I just, there's something about the way that they wrote for her that's just very grating. It's not seductive. Mm. It's not powerful. It's not any of these things that the character needs to be. I don't know what it is about the songs they wrote for her that just mm, don't work for me. And then you get the scene immediately after, which is them, it's you know, <laughs> celebrating this this blockbuster success. And it's like, really? That's it? <laughs> Speaking of it's a hit, I like most of it. However, part of it sounds extremely Mr. Purelli's Miracle Elixir from Sweeney Todd, which was literally the show he wrote just before this one. Sondheim, I know you're very prolific. You're never going to listen to this podcast, but please go back and fix this one. You are 91 years <laughs> because old. Because it, it sounds 110% it exactly like you ripped the composition out of Sweeney Todd and plopped it in here and threw some words on it. I have to say, I don't, I don't hate, I totally get what you're saying. And I don't hate that because it makes me feel kind of smart when I can go, <laughs> oh my gosh, this sounds just like that show. <laughs> makes you feel very uh, cultured. Yes, I know, Sondheim. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, I have to say It's a Hit is not one of my favorite songs from the show. I kept watching it wanting more because it's a celebration of this astonishing breakthrough opening night of this incredibly talented duo and it, it's kind of pattery energy, and I, I want more, mm -hmm. you know, huge, big, soaring melodies to really get the feeling of what that is, of them backstage just with their minds blowing at, at what a hit they've made. And it doesn't quite get there, I think. I, I wish it was a little bit more magnificent, grandiloquent, you know, all of that. So we can move on to 
the next year that the play takes place in 1962 um this this is the big scene the blob i like the blob i enjoy it i feel like that's exactly what new york society is like i wouldn't know but mm. i feel like it is it's very fun for the audience to put themselves in in that party i totally agree with you i love the blob but but it there's not i don't know it's almost a a, a cartoon of who the movers and shakers are in the theater in the in the world of broadway I, I almost want them to take it more seriously. I don't know. I, I don't know if that makes sense at all, but you know, I want there to be a little bit more danger, a little bit more at stake. I totally get that in its current form. I think that as a memory play, we do exaggerate. And so if this, if we reframe it as a memory uh. play, this would be exactly what Frank thinks of when he thinks of this party is this absolutely ridiculous group of people with no depth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I, it, as you're talking, I'm thinking about why, why it bugs me. He wants so much to be a part of this world. And if that world is ridiculous and annoying, why does he want to be a part of it? But where he's at now, he looks down on it because... He's above it. He's L.A. society. She says you're going to be more rich and more influential than all these people here. Very interesting. Oh, that's an interesting take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kayla, you're not a big fan of growing up? <laughs> Part two. Gussie's song's great on me. I'm, I've been really trying to think about why. And I think that adding the growing up motifs for the men might help. I, I think I might just be particularly bothered because one, it's not very effectively seductive. But two, Gussie is really the only one that's portrayed as predatory. Mm. That's really not given to Joe at all. Okay. He's shown it's like this sweet guy that adores her. But like he was a creep who gave his secretary plastic surgery and then changed her name and married her. And then Gussie is shown as like preying on Frank. And then Frank is predatory to Meg. And I think the fact that it's only the woman who's like this sexualized creep might be the issue with me. Yeah, no, I think that's very wise because, you know, watching it, I kind of had the same feeling. I'm kind of like, ew, I don't like her because, you know, she breaks up a marriage, the marriage that we like, you know, we really like the Frank Beth marriage mm -hmm. and she breaks that up. And it's not until the scene where we see her hurt by Frank and Meg that we finally go, oh, okay, poor thing. But then she throws acid in her eyes and I feel less bad. <laughs> Completely forgot about the acid. It wasn't oh. acid, but still. <laughs> Iodine. Oh, She's going to have blue eyes. Um, I, I, I have to gush for a moment about Good Thing Going. A Good Thing Going is perfectly crafted because it, it allows us to then later see what is destroyed in the beginning of Act 2 number, but it also gets us a view into the characters' minds because you can already see that Charlie feels his relationship slipping. In my opinion, you already feel that. And I think this song so beautifully encapsulates that he already feels his friend and their artistic relationship slipping. And I think that that is one of the most beautiful things that a music theater composer slash lyricist can do is allow us to be audience superior while still doing a song that moves the plot forward in the actual physical realm. The Blob 2. It works. It's exactly why both Frank and Charlie should have taken Charlie's advice and learned when to stop because mm -hmm. no one's going to listen to the same song twice. They're going to start shouting and they're not going to give a fuck anymore. Right. Okay, let's move further back in time to 1960. Um, 
This is the, this is the big one. This is the one where I'm gonna get torn to shreds. No, you will not, because every critic hated Bobby and Jackie and Jack. They were like, this is the piece that's supposed to show us that Charlie and Frank are good. They're not good. I meant that you're going to tear me to shreds, Kayla. <laughs> I'm not going to tear you to shreds. I just, th I think it's clever and I love a sea shanty, but that's just me. It's not that there's anything inherently amazing about the song. Okay. So I want to remove this song from the show and completely replace it with a new song for two reasons. One, I want to pull this show right out of the timeline that it's in. And two, because I want something like Good Thing Going that helps illustrate where these characters are at this moment. In the chronological order, we've had opening doors, which in the middle has them like truly downtrodden, and then they decide to take matters into their own hands. And I want this song in the same way that Good Thing Going is, I want this song to be about them taking matters into their own hands and how them simply controlling their lives is affecting their lives at this moment. But, you know, you made me think of something because, first of all, let me just say that I love Bobby and Jackie and Jack. I think it's clever. I think it's complex. <laughs> I, I, and I think if you put it in the context of these are two 20-year-olds who wrote this, then you sort of get mm -hmm. this idea of, oh, these are, these are two characters who have tremendous promise. Having said that, based on what you just said, the song that we see in the next scene that they audition for Joe with is Who Wants to Live in New York? They should have taken that song, developed it even more, made it even more sort of complex and, and witty, and that that could be the song that's in the cabaret that connects Joe's story with their story. Mm. That and then and then you can you know heave a sigh of relief that we got rid of Bobby and Jackie and Jack. <laughs> Thank you. Not a day goes by reprise. So obviously. If Mary is a lesbian, she's not going to be singing longingly at Frank. Even if we kept the storyline of her being in love with him, she breaks in way too early. Beth gets to enjoy her wedding for like one second before we're like, and Mary's in the spotlight now. At least let Beth and Frank have the first verse before anyone else starts singing. If you keep Mary being in love and wanting to sing longingly after him, fine. Give him a verse and a chorus. But if you cut that, then the end can be Beth, Franklin, Mary and Charlie because you know they're all friends and creative partners now and she's kind of joined this little cohort they have and that can be sweet I think the the other things a couple other things that's weird about this scene is they they stand up to give their vows and Frank's vows are the most vapid stupid vows and then she starts singing this gorgeous song and it's like okay well what does that tell us about these people that's why he doesn't write the lyrics <laughs> The other thing that's terrible, I think, is that we never get to see Evelyn. You know, I mean, that's such oh, no, a... No, we do see Evelyn. A, we um, see her for one second. When? Did you not notice Evelyn? I missed her. See? Okay, because I was also bothered, and then they did this, and I was like, oh, that's hilarious. Um, she's Mary's roommate. She comes on the roof, and she's like, ah, oh, boys! I never got that. I never <laughs> got Evelyn. that. Isn't that cute? Which is terrible because they always make her dorky and, and really unattractive. So let's give her to Charlie. Just like they do with Charlie. Because, mm -hmm. you know, because Ken, you know, Ken gets Barbie, but Charlie gets, you know, this dorky girl. That's so interesting. I never caught that. We'll move another year back in time to 1959. Uh, opening Doors. What a fun song. I'd love to perform this song. I'd love it. <laughs> It's just a shot of pure serotonin, of youthful excitement and, and energy and looking at the future and belief and mm, good stuff. 
if we take it out of the timeline like Max wants, we would need to update the orchestrations to make them less typewriter reliant. And then the only little thing I'd want to do is give Joe and Gussie a moment after leave your name with the girl where the three of them leave and it's just the two of them. So he can do a little growing up motif to her and kind of notice her. Because I feel like it would work for because he says leave your name with the girl twice. So if he says, leave your name with the girl, whatever. And then second time he says, leave your name with the girl. He really looks at the girl and kind of sets his sights on her to start grooming her to be Gussie. I love that it sort of encompasses the youthful enthusiasm and then gets to the, the moment of rejection when they're all feeling really frustrated. And then they sort of gain their enthusiasm back. And I mean, I think that's, that's what's so cool about this show is that it captures something that's very truthful. You know, I think back to me as a 21-year-old, 22-year-old thinking I was headed straight for Broadway. Um, didn't quite get there. Um, but it captures that that enthusiasm, that idealism so well. That's the whole point of this show is that as a, as a 20-year-old, it's all stars and glitter and, and, you know, happiness and fame and fortune. And, and as a 60-year-old, it's, oh, God, what an interesting journey. You know, never saw that coming, but fabulous. Thanks, you know, thanks for paying attention. It's a really cool show. It is. I'm really glad that we have these these kind of varied perspectives of, of stages of life getting to discuss this. Let's move into our last scene and wrap it up. 1957, our time. I, in my production, I'm going to cut the ensemble singing in this song because it's not the last song in my production. And also because it doesn't work with my like, slowly the world becomes more focused on just the only things that you can remember. And also, of course, I'm removing the Sputnik sighting because I don't want it in the timeline. <laughs> I would really, I, I didn't do this for, for my preparation for this, but to go back and, and read about what that event was you know, the first time that you could look up in the sky and see a satellite, you know, going across the sky. And was that amazing? And did that make everybody super excited? Like, you know, like a Mars landing or something like that, that it, it represented mm. something to that time that was about possibility. As a director, you have to be able to capture that moment of, oh my God, we mm -hmm. sent something up into space and it's actually, you know, it's it's interacting with the earth and and all that stuff you know it's it's tricky because we're so sort of jaded about that now but you have to recapture what was that moment back then so i i actually prepared for that argument um you can tell me if i'm completely wrong and, and an idiot but um i i am at that age and or i've just passed the age that they're supposed to be in this scene and there's so much sort of you're in college, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed nonsense that any exciting thing can be this thing that you're like, oh, th from here on out, I can do anything. Like, it, you can, there can be a solar eclipse and you're just like, this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. From here on out, this is my sign that I can do anything. I'm, I'm not necessarily sure that, you, that the characters need such a massive cultural milestone in order to do that, like, See, and I don't think they need anything to be like, we can do anything. I feel like that's oh, yeah. what everyone feels like when they graduate college. So I'm more concerned with having a night that it's like, we are going to be friends forever. Because you you have those nights when you're young where it's like, 
it's not you see a once in a lifetime thing. It's you stay out all night at a bar talking to people and you're like, we get each other and we're going to be friends forever. And so my concept for this song is that instead of having the Sputnik meet in the middle, have Frank and Charlie, they play at like a coffee shop near Columbia or something. And Mary comes up to them and is like, oh, I'm working for the school paper. Do you guys write that? Do you go here? Can I interview you? Whatever. And they're like, yeah, let's take it to a bar. And that's also a good way to introduce early on that she doesn't drink. Maybe she can confide that one of her parents was an alcoholic or something to give that a little more context to. Um, and then, you know, they, they bond over their art because she's working for the school paper and she's writing about interesting events on campus. But what she really wants to do is be a novelist. And she's got all these great ideas for books, you know, so they can really get excited and kind of gush and just sing that second part together. I think that that would be really dope. I do think the whole aspect of them being writers gets a little bit of short shrift because again, the focus goes to Frank and his composing, mm -hmm. um, which is valid, but but you don't get that moment of like, oh my God, you're gonna be a writer too. Oh my God, you know, I'm gonna write the great American novel or whatever. We sort of lose that. We don't quite get their enthusiasm to the same level that we do for Frank's mm -hmm. stuff. but. But I would say, you know, if you're if you're thinking of it as a memory play, having it start out on a rooftop in New York City is pretty romantic. I mean, that's definitely like, oh, remember that that night, you know, when we were watching the stars on the rooftop and we all met. And, you know, I mean, it, it's I think that's part of it is that it starts out. So what an ideal theatrical beginning on the rooftop in New York. And now it, it's the part where we go completely off the rails because I've decided our time is not like really a great end of show number. In I my put opinion. Merrily We Roll Along at the end. Oh yeah, I forgot you did. Mm -hmm. So I want to do a new song um, because we've gone through this entire journey, e even if it's not in the memory play format that it that it is in for my production, we've gone through this entire journey and then we end it with our time and the audience is like, as David experienced in in real time and in person like you go through this whole thing and you get to that point and you're like okay what was that even about like why was i here <laughs> so i want to introduce a song which would be about friendship the costs of success and ultimately reconciling with the choices that you've made in life in that's frank frank talks about how he doesn't really compose anymore he says that's old frank and i think it'd be really beautiful if after this entire memory play he has this moment where he just sits down at the piano and starts composing something. And then all the people from his past come out and sing to him this song about friendship and the cost of success and reconciling with the choices that you've made in order to get where you are. And I think that would be absolutely beautiful. And then to have him at the very end, stand up, pull out his phone, or if we're in the time period, go over to the wall, pull a phone off the wall and dial someone up and, then he says, hi, Charlie, and just black out. Okay, love, however, <laughs> I feel like a song about the trials and tribulations of friendship and fame, it just feels a little bit on the nose and like pandering to the audience a little bit. They get it, I think. I love the concept of he hasn't composed in a long time, but what if he walks over to the piano, sits down and sings by himself, yesterday is done, and the song is merrily we roll along. And it starts out with just him at his piano. And it makes sense because if this was a memory play, then there's been snippets of this song throughout in these 10 to 15 second fragments. And so having it all come mm -hmm. together at the piano, I think that would work. 
I agree. I think that'd be a really good solution in keeping with what's here. And, you know, honestly, I think if we took that, I think that makes such great sense that, that Merrily Roll Along is the final song that we hear. Frank composing, and then he picks up the phone and says, hello, Charlie. If you take those two fixes and then add Not A Day Goes By into the opening scene, I think that that would solve like 87% of the frustrating problems with this show. So Sondheim, we know you fixed it in 1994. Let's fix it again. You're 91. You've still got some good years left in you. Give us a ring. We're around. (laughs) David, thank you so much for coming on. You brought such awesome insights into this. It was really, this was definitely one of our most kind of group think babies of a show. I had a lot of fun. Absolutely. Well, thank you for, for asking me. It is, it has been just such a, a gift to like this show that's been a distant memory in the back of my head, waiting for someone to, you know, buy me a beer so I can say, you know, I know how to fix Merrily We Roll Along. Um, <laughs> you know, finally. That's how this show was finally. born, was Max and I drinking <laughs> and being like, we can fix every bad show. <laughs> So, yeah, so thank you for bringing it. Now now we know how to fix it. I can stop thinking about it and get on with my life. <laughs> thank you, everyone, so much for listening. If you want to see some images from Merrily We Roll Along and find out what we're doing next episode, you can find out by following us on Instagram at GetItRightPod. If you want to talk directly to us or share some of your ideas, you can email us at EverGetItRightPod at gmail.com. You can find us on Patreon at Doesn't Anybody Ever Get It Right and give us money so we can do this better. And finally, we'd like to ask all of you to please write a review on your podcast app. If your podcast app doesn't allow that, just take that little share button that I know is in all of your podcast apps and send it to one friend. Just one friend that you think would thoroughly enjoy a Sondheim slash Merrily We Roll Along reimagining. And if you don't have a friend like that, It's time to find better friends. All right, y'all. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you all in two weeks. Bye. Cheers.